Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Flamingo Sundays podcast, episode 17. And today I'm joined by a very close friend of mine um, who ha- has a very, very interesting story. I think it's very similar to myself and I resonate a lot with it. Um, and he has a, a very, uh, I guess, interesting business as well that um, I've had a lot of fun with. And I think there's a lot of people in Sydney who are going to know this man, Ian Rose. Welcome to the Flamingo Sundays podcast. Mr. Henderson, thank you very much for uh, having me on board. It's uh, good to come and be a client of yours. Thank you, you know, mate. So the other way around, so I'm here to give you a hard time. Mate, um, I think people are going to get a lot of value out of this because a lot of my listeners are younger people and um, you know, you, you've come from, I guess, humble backgrounds and built quite a successful business. And, and along the way, you know, you've had your own trials and tribulations. So I think, take us back to the start. Um, the young Ian Rose, that was a, uh, a trade in the air, aircraft, I guess, space. Yeah, so basically it actually goes back a little bit further than, than that. Um, at the age of 12, I had my first business and I worked out I could uh, buy Super Nintendos from garage sales and undercut video shops. Yeah, right. So I had uh, two Super Nintendo consoles and about 15 games that my mum used to drive me to little kids' houses and drop it off in a cardboard box and we essentially used to undercut video shops to uh, rent out Super Nintendos for the uh, long, long weekend and I think in the first year made $495. And how much did it cost to buy a second hand Super uh, Nintendo? Not $495. <laughs> so about $20 from an op shop and um, that was the first first little business that, that, we, uh, that, that, that I ran. Um, as soon as I was 14, nine months, um, started working at, at um, McDonald's yeah. um, and then in year 11 wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. Uh, I definitely didn't want to go into an office. Right. I didn't particularly want to be a uh, car mechanic. And uh, my mum mentioned, why don't you go look at Qantas as an aircraft engineer? So I gave them a call and they said that I wouldn't typically get in first time applying. So I put in my application anyway. Um, out of 2,000 applications, only 70 people got apprenticeships and I was right. fortunate enough to get my apprenticeship in the first, in the first application. So end of year 11, I left left school and I went off to work in the in the big world. So started my trade as a 16 year old at Qantas Airways as an aircraft maintenance engineer, um, not knowing anything about aeroplanes. I didn't know the difference between a 747 and a 767. <laughs> uh, one has four engines, one has two, and um, done my time through through four years at Qantas. Um, which had its own ups and downs as well. I lost my license when I was 19. My mum and dad had to take me out to the airport for 6am, pick me up at 6am, so thanks to them, managed to finish my, my trade. Right. Finished my trade at uh, just turned 21, and then after that, I unfortunately got put into a workshop, which is not where I wanted to be. I wanted to be out on the line or out in the hangars, out where all the action was, basically. So not to be defeated, I... I put my application, put my resume in with a couple of other airlines. Yeah. I was fortunate enough to um, get to Cathay Pacific, and that taught me, unbeknown to me at the time, was a lot on how I ran luxury boat syndicates. Right. So at Cathay Pacific, we were working at International Terminal. Uh, we were an outstation. Obviously, our home port was Hong Kong. Looking after a lot of the Chinese carriers, um, also looking after Air Canada, Land Chile. So we had to learn how to adapt to different cultures, different personalities, different language barriers as well. Um, was turning around about 15 flights flights a day. 
So obviously with LBS as it grew, we had 10 or 11 boats, which would go out with different people. So obviously use that structure to help me there. Yeah. Um, Cali Pacific taught me a hell of a lot, um, taught me good manners, uh, taught me how to be in front of people, taught me t time pressure. Um, through Cathay Pacific, I started property investing as well. Right. So I bought my first property at 21, second one, 23, third one, uh, 25. And then all of a sudden, um, I got a call from a mate who he was in this little boat. He said, look, you know, there's eight of us going into a boat. We want to, we're going to put in like $4,000 each. Um, do you want in? Um, and without, you know, without blinking an eye, straight in, I've always wanted a boat. 25 year old, push on a boat. Yeah, yeah, could never afford it. It was nothing like luxury boat syndicates is. It was a little bay liner, out on a mooring, covered in bird shit. But it didn't matter, I thought I was the king. Yeah. So everyone kept asking me, how do you own a boat? How do you own a boat? You know, you're 25, you're working at the airport. Surely you can't afford a 100 grand boat by yourself because by this time we'd upgraded to a 100 grand boat. I was out wakeboarding on a Tuesday morning, um, putting pictures all over social media. And then I said, oh, look, I share it with eight people. So we don't actually own it for a hundred grand, we own it for 12 grand each. I'm like, oh, that's a really good idea. If you get out, you know, want to get in. So I sort of heard this like a, you know, re 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 repetition over and over again. I thought, why isn't anyone doing this? So my curiosity got the better of me, went online um, whilst, whilst sitting at the airport, put in Boat Share Sydney, and I couldn't find anyone doing it in the eastern suburbs. Hang on a second, and I thought boat syndicate Sydney, uh, you know, fractional ownership. I just couldn't find anyone in the east. So literally at that moment, I messaged my my partner at the time. I said, "I'm starting a boat company," and she's like, "Whatever, just <laughs> message me when you've done it. It's another one of your great ideas." I'm like, "No, no, I'm serious. I'm starting this this boat the boat company." This taught me a lot about negotiation. So I was like, "Okay, I've got no misses or." <laughs> yeah, yeah, that comes later. Um, I've got no, I don't really have much money. I've got this idea. How am I going to do it? So, when I first started, I basically went and registered the company, and I went and um, went into a, a broker, which we bought our boat off before. Yeah. I said, this is my idea. This is what I what I want to do. And he's like, yeah, it's a good idea. Went to the marina, this is what I want to do. Okay, I need to get an office. I'm like, okay, I can't afford an office. So I negotiated myself a desk in, in, in the in the broker, brokerage. They said I need to get my own stand at the boat show, couldn't afford my stand at the boat show. And so I negotiated to be on a stand at the boat show. So I had enough money to build a website, a business card, and an idea, and a uniform. So I did that, went to my first boat show, and then I was basically pre-selling shares in a boat that didn't exist. Right, and, that's, and, and, and I guess that's where the entrepreneurial journey sort of yeah. kicked off. Let's go back now to, I guess, the initial entrepreneurial business that you had around, you know, buying it and selling the Nintendos. Where do you think that come from? Like, I mean, sure, everyone wants to make money, but where do you reckon the idea come from? Hey, let's go buy a Nintendo and then rent it out to people. Like, are your parents yeah. entrepreneurial? Do you come from a business background? Like, uh, My parents definitely aren't entrepreneurial. Uh, both mum and dad work for the council. Yeah. But obviously a very humble humble upbringing. Yeah. Um, we didn't have a lot as, as a kid. We were very rich in love and we, we never, never went without. Yeah. But we definitely didn't have holidays in the snow. I didn't have polar at Ralph, Ralph Lauren. We lived in a council house. Um, so I guess my 
I was inspired by seeing other kids and what what they had, yeah. and working out how how I, I'm going to get there, right. and essentially working out my own path on, on how I'm going to make it affordable or achievable, or, you know, basically taking the steps to be able to get what what you want. Yeah. So I've always sort of had that drive, I guess. I don't, you know, sometimes it's not so much the mon- the monetary value, but it's working out the process or the path to be able to get to what you want in, in life. Which is similar to myself. Like I grew up, um, you know, in a family like Sam Jules, very loving. We didn't have the best of everything, but we had exactly what we needed. Yeah. And it sounds like for you, it was like seeing other people and yeah. what they had, and you're like, fuck, I want to have that, you know? And yeah. as a kid, you always want what you can't have. Yeah. Um, and you probably think people have got it better off than you do from the exterior. Yeah. So I sounds like that was the real driver. It's like, well, you know, if I can buy Nintendo and sell it and get money, then I can use that money to go and buy Correct. whatever it was. So before coming to Australia, we actually lived in London. Right. And um, he got born here, went back when I was six months, and we chopped and changed for a couple of years. And um, came back out when I was nine and originally supposed to stay for two years. Dad will get his visa, then we'll go back. And um, when I was 11, Dad went back for eight weeks, decided that he couldn't bring up his kids in London anymore and sacrificed everything to, um, when I say everything, his friends and his family, which yeah. it obviously is a lot, you know, you can't put a price on that. Yeah. Um, he went through a lot of depression himself, trying to come to terms with being away from his friends. We're not talking about moving to Queensland, we're 12,000 12, miles away. Yeah. So it was a massive sacrifice for that. Even picking up the phone, you can't because it's different different time zone. Um, so yeah, obviously they bought me and my sister out for a huge o- o- opportunity, and um, I suppose mum sort of instilled the drive to do something with your 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 money as well. I mean, even as an apprentice at, at Qantas, even though you're an apprentice wage at 19 years old, only 50 grand. Now 16 years ago. That's quite quite a lot of money. So instead of buying fast cars, going out to pubs, this, that, and the other, we also, I think, at the time when I bought my first property, it was only five percent and no and no stamp duty. So managed yeah. to save up eighteen thousand dollars to go buy my, my first place. Yeah. And as you probably know, buying the first one's the hardest. Yeah. So once you have your first, and you can leverage and so on. Yeah. Right. Okay. So I guess what. So we we we've done the first one. You've you've done school. You've then jumped into the apprenticeship. And then it sounds like it was really a natural progression into the business. You know, it was like, why isn't anyone else doing that? This is a great idea. I think it's a great idea. And then you just led that with your own passion. Like, did, yeah. you, did, you, did you love boats or was it just like... Uh, look, I absolutely love being on, on the water. Yeah. Um, we'll talk about it a bit later, but obviously have got two companies now that are based on the water. But definitely just my happy place is out behind a boat, wakeboarding or going out to the little beach. Yeah, always loved being on, on the water or around water. Right. Um, and the experience, sorry, the, the experience from, I guess, working on airplanes, that would have then, you know, passed over onto boats or was boats like a completely new thing for you and you sort of just have a business in boats? Yeah. Yeah. Well, at, at the time, yes. I just, it literally the story of just fake it to it until you make it. Yeah. You know, I, when I first started at, uh, with the boat company or the idea, I went and worked with a guy who was detailing boats for, for free in return to basically learn how to, to drive boats. Right. Never driven a, a twi- twin engine, never driven a criss craft, never driven anything above 20 to 25 foot. So you can't really be a director or owner of a boat company, you don't know how to drive a twin, a twin engine boat. Yeah. So obviously I didn't have a boat, I didn't have a, a boat under luxury boats that needs to clean. So what, how am I gonna how am I gonna learn? I went and worked for free in return to be able to 
get all this experience. To learn the ropes. Yeah. And there's a lot to boats, right? It's, it's not just a matter of jumping in a boat, no. starting, turning the head right. and jumping. Like, yeah. Especially running a business, there's so much you need to know about the actual boat themselves. Yeah. I guess for potential customers, you need to be the expert yeah. when they come here and say, hey, what's the difference between X and, and Y boat? Yeah. And why would I choose this? You've Correct. got to know the answers to those questions. Well, that's, you know, the, the thing that comes down to, to sales as well. You can you can just make the worst boat beautiful, but it's, it's uh, making people believe in you as well and believe in your product. Um, going back to when I started and learning, I used to work at the airport by night and then I'd be at the marina by, by, by day. So it wasn't until my third boat, then when you sort of have an idea of what's going on now, then I actually let go of, go of the, the airport. So you were working like night shift as an aircraft maintenance engineer and then yep. coming probably a few hours sleep and going to the marina? Yeah, so my typical day would be get down to the marina for seven o'clock. I would literally be booking meetings with anyone that would, would call me, Chinese magazines, any magazine, someone that wanted to look at a boat, get their boat license to try and give the perception that I was busy. Yeah. Um, I'll be trying to book meetings with different brokers or anything that marine based to try and get people's knowledge. Yeah. Um, and then I'd finish up at the marina about four, four o'clock. I would literally race home, have a shower, put my airport uniform on, get to the airport for six o'clock. I'd work until 11 p.m. and then back home, do it all again. Right. So I'd be doing that about six days a week. And that went on until the third boat? Yeah, so how many years a year. Journey? So it was a year. Right. Yeah. So it progressed quite quickly. It did. It did progress. It did progress quickly, um, and it got to that third boat, and I had to had to let the airport go, which was hard in itself. Because even though you're working part time, making about seven hundred bucks a week, when you don't have that seven hundred dollars a week come in, your bank account goes down. Pretty and then fast. it's the mindset mindset shift as well. Correct. You know, knowing you don't have any income that you're going to get every week, even yeah. you don't need that income. Yeah, I think we had this chat as well when. You went from Garricon into property investor become a buyer's agent. You've got to, you've got to hustle and get out there. A hundred percent. You know, it's, you've got your fixed expenses and you've got your lifestyle. You've, you become accustomed to, yeah. and then you lose that income, and then you have to go and, you know, I guess eat what you kill. Correct. Um, it's a big shift there. So, how did you go about sourcing all of the people for the first boat? Because I guess it's one thing to just buy the boat, yeah. but then you've got to fill that boat with the people who own it, and then that's got to be profitable enough for you to then buy your second, third. Yeah, so when I first started the business, I thought the 32 Chris Craft would be my flagship boat, and that, which is at the time, was about 300 grand. And I sort of had budgeted that I could borrow enough money or had enough money within the properties that I had that I'd be able to, to buy that. So similar to a property developer, the business model was to try and sell 50% of the shares, hence being at a boat show, selling shares in a boat that I didn't actually own yet, yeah. but gathering enough interest to um, hedge my, my, my bets basically, so raise 50% of capital. So almost like a, a capital raise would take an expression of interest deposit, which is a small amount, but enough to pe keep people vested. And then after that time, we would go, go, and, buy, go, go and buy the rest of the boat. We use the boat show as our as our launch. So that's that. the Sydney boat show for people who yeah. like, which is yeah. probably what the biggest boating event in Australia. It's actually the biggest boating in the Southern Hemisphere. Well, there you go. Yeah, it's yeah, so the Sydney International Boat Show, and obviously then built a website which we marketed through SEO, SEM, which was a whole new space that I had to learn. Yeah, um, knew nothing about about marketing at the time. Um, know quite a lot now. So. I remember getting my first inquiry through the website as well. I was actually up in, in Taiwan playing an international basketball competition for Cathay Pacific. I thought, how easy is this? 
you know, just sit halfway across the world and someone inquires about a boat. Yeah, and I just thought, you know, I got my first eight inquiries. I thought I'd sold out. Um, little did I know that people were just kicking tight a lot of pies. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and even at the first boat show, you took 30 leads. You're like, geez, how good is this? Is easy. Um, but yeah, then learning how to qualify and, and, and what's the words? And sells them, essentially. Sells them, yeah. yeah. Um, so that so, was so you went to the So with the first boat, it sounds like you had the 32 Chris Craft. You then took that idea and yep. got your photo and, and the details of the boat to the boat show yep. and then try to sell that idea to say, hey, look, I've got this boat coming. Do you want to be a part of it? I was fortunate enough to negotiate to be on the, the importer's stand at right. the boat show. So at least there was a physical boat I could show. I didn't own it at all. Um, it could have been sold at any time. Yeah. But for all intensive purposes, they thought that I owned that. Right, that, so the perception was there that yeah. that boat was yours yeah. and this is the boat that we're buying into. Yeah, and actually yeah. at the boat show, I there was obviously a range of boats that um, the importer had. And, you know, they might say to me, oh, look, we look, want something a bit bigger, a bit smaller. So I was trying to get a bit of an idea of what your people wanted. Yeah. It worked in my benefit at the time that there was only one other company doing it. Right. Um, and the business model that I chose to use, which was um, shared ownership, not as in a club or a membership-based platform. So we, I didn't have too many people um, or didn't, there weren't too many options for people to walk around the boat show and, and look at specifically what, what, what they wanted. There's been a massive change in, in boat share since I started. Um, if you actually go to the boat show now, you'll probably find that there's more boats for sale via way of a shared structure than there is for a direct purchase. And that's because, I guess, owning a boat 100% doesn't mean you only use it 365 no, days a year, right? not at all. So it makes more sense for people to say, hey, if I own a boat one eighth of a share and I can use it forty times a year, yep. um, that's still going to be more than enough. Yep. And I've only got one eighth of the cost. Correct. And that's why you think it's blown up so much. Yes. Yeah, and you know, I think Uber came around at the same time, but just after I started. So the whole shared economy um, was becoming increasingly popular. We've got you know, Airbnb now, Uber, obviously your two biggest yep. you think shared shared economy. But then you obviously then Go Get came around. Um, the car, car share models as well. Yeah. So then boat share becoming increasingly popular as well. And you are right, it's, it's an expensive toy to have. And not only is the cost of the acquisition, it's the running costs to keep the boat. Just to have a 52 foot boat berth in Point Piper alone is 4,000 a month. And that's just before, that's before you've even put fuel in it, insurance, taken out for, for the day, get something to clean it and so on and so on. Right, okay. So. You've obviously filled up the, the spots in the first boat. Yep. The 32 foot cross Chris Craft is, is now full. What then made you think, hey, now let's go buy a second boat? Was was it a revenue and profit making business? Or was yeah, it, it wasn't. I was never going to be able to retire off, off one off one boat. Yeah. I originally had a vision to have 20 boats over two locations. Um, it was never going to stop at one. I didn't really know when it was going to stop. Um, and that was probably, to a degree, part of my, my, my downfall. Right. It started, and it started going so well, is that the goalposts change all, all the time. So I think in the first three years, we did nine boats. Right, which is massive. Which is massive. Um, just something you said then, so you said, you know, I guess um, your downfall is not necessarily knowing where you're going. So do you think that not having a business plan or not having a plan to say, hey, these are the milestones I need to reach and this yeah. is how I need to get there, where you were just sort of you know, going- Winging a prayer. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it was. I nef definitely knew I wanted to it to be a professional business. It wasn't going to be a hobby. Yeah. Um, back in the very early days, I was going to do it with someone else, 
and they pulled out right before a dollar was spent because he saw how much I wanted to go on with it and he wanted to do it on a more of a part-time part-time gig. And probably more for personal use to have a boat that you, you could use. Just a hobby. Yeah. Yeah. He was a hobby. He was he was a he used to charter um, airplanes as well. He's a pilot, so it's just another thing on the side. But I was like, you know, if we're going to do a luxury brand, we sort of have to give it 100. percent Right. And when you talk about luxury brands, you know, you said that the 32 foot Chris Craft, you're talking a 300 thousand dollar boat, which is not small amounts of money. You know, no. generally people buying those boats are, you know, at some level in life. And then within the first three years, you said you had nine boats. So what are yeah. you know over the, the fleet? What do those boats look like? And I guess what are the costs of? Yeah. So this they started increasing quite quite rapidly. And one of the first conversations I had with the broker was your market is 45 to 55 foot. And he was spot on basically. So we went from a uh, 32 to a 35, straight up to a 45 and then into a 52. So all of a sudden within four boats, what's meant to be my flagship at a 32 foot, I'm now at nearly $2 million and 50, 52. So then we went, I think we done another two, another 52 a 40, another 45, a 40, and then all of a sudden we had a 60 foot, $3 million boat. And I'm thinking in four years, how am I standing on the front of this 60 foot, you know, three, $3 million, $3 million boat? Um, so the, the dealer was right, the market was there, but then obviously as you think everything's going really well, ego starts getting ahead of you, you don't stick to your business plan, and maybe this is where I started coming a little bit unstuck, or it started to, to flounder a little right. bit. You're not having a proper business plan in place, and not 100% sure of the direct, you know, trajectory the that yeah. I wanted to go. Right. Then another opportunity came to open up another location at the Spit, and I took myself away from Point Piper to open up the Spit, and then I sort of had two locations that were trying to trying to manage both, and I didn't manage the growth growth properly. And this is where it all started. Not, 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 not go wrong, but some expensive lessons in life. So, I mean, for most people, you know, you, you, if you're in four years in, you probably had what fifteen to twenty million dollars worth of boats sitting in the water. Yep. Had what thirty or forty boat owners. Yep. And you think everything's going right. Yep. The, so you got, you believe you may have got too caught up in the growth of things and not yep. necessarily managing. You thought everything's going okay. There's money coming in. People are buying boats, yep. and and you sort of spread yourself too thin. Yep. Yeah, and it just putting a lot of trust in staff as well. Um, I had a, you know, a couple of great staff. My first couple of staff members were, were so good, and I just thought, geez, how is how good's this? You know, but I just got really spoiled in those first couple of staff members, and right. then everyone you employ, you sort of think that they're going to be the same. So I didn't have, and then they also think you think you're, they're going to think like like you, which is completely wrong. You know, you're the you're the one percent that is running a business. They're never going to think like you. They don't understand all this now fast forward eight nine years when i'm starting to do disc profiles management training courses then you when you look back you're like right this all makes sense now right and i guess it's true right because if it's your business you obviously get the financial rewards you have the financial burden but you know no one's going to care about that business like you know it's, it's a very very personalized and service-based business as well i mean so, so far we've only talked about selling the boats and the financial model that's really about 20% of the actual business. It takes us, for example, six months to sell the boat out. The syndicate term runs for three, three years or three and a half years. And now we've got to pr promise our upkeep of looking after the boat, looking after the client and keep that walk-on, walk-off service, which is, we haven't even touched on that yet. So it's not just selling the boat, 
uh, eight shares and then once the boat is sold we pass it on and let it be someone else's problem then the second part comes into it this is where they're managing the growth which is all part of the growth yeah. right yeah so you know when, like you said once you sell a boat that boat obviously has a term of, of how many years it's going to be under management yeah. how many years those people own it for and then what else is a part of that you know you, you just said then you've got to actually manage the boat so what's yeah. it entailed in so we we pitched a walk-on walk-off service and then i change that pitch to a concierge walk-on walk-off service because if you say walk-on walk-off what actually does that mean is the boat clean sitting there ready to go well we did more than that so we would organize catering crewing hostesses alcohol we would plan people's days corporate events we would organize different marinas and berths and take the boat to pit water for clients so it wasn't just point pipe at home base we sort of nurtured them through the whole boating lifestyle. We had our own berth at Woolloomooloo, so clients could take the boat to Woolloomooloo. We sort of wanted people to make sure that they were going to use their boat all, all, all year round. So in winter, how am, I, how am I going to use the boat? So we used to, we say used to, obviously this year was off because of COVID, but we had Vivid Festival, then we'd have whale watching season. And then, you know, sort of coming into August, September, you might only have maybe six weeks of downtime and then you know it starts warming up again so we we're trying to convince people to keep using their boat the whole time because the more they use the boat the more interest that they have that they're going to renew into another syndicate and so on and that's what probably was a point of difference as well from everyone else doing it right people were starting to come into the marketplace but not all those people had i guess the personalized service that you had really really differed um, my vision was never to be the biggest um, I wasn't interested in having 50 boats on the water, but I just wanted to be the best at what at what we did and nurturing those clients. Right. Okay. So, when did it get to a point where you were like, we're, we were at how many? What was the biggest? I, I guess amount of boats you had. We had 11 boats in the water at one point. Right. So, um, you know, and that was over two locations as well. Which is a roughly what 80 to 90 owners. So you've got 80 oh, to more, but more than more. that. Yeah, because if you help. Some, some shares are split, as you know, so I think at one point we got 120 clients. Right, so you got 120 people reading yeah. you, yeah. harassing you every single day because they yeah. want to use the boat, the boat, 11 boats. Out. When did you get to a point where you sort of thought, well, maybe this is not going to plan or maybe it's time to rethink some things? Like, when did that point come? It's a good question. It's a, it's a good question. It's hard to pinpoint any one time. Um, I tried to implement operation managers in over to two, two locations. I kept getting phone calls um, because I'm naturally results driven. Instead of working out the problem there and then, I would take all the problems back and then try and fix it myself so I wasn't delegating properly. Yeah. It's only so many hours in the day. Um, I definitely remember a turning point where I decided to let go of the other um, location, which was hard. But just the improvement in that alone, because I then came back into Point Piper and everyone sees your face and these clients that are spending 250, 300,000 with you, you know, they want to know where, where the person is behind, behind their operation. Yeah. But to answer your question and pinpoint an exact time is, is quite hard. It's very hard. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we are still scaling down now and then the vision of the business has definitely changed. So sort of flipping the business model around is pre-finding all the people and then going buying buying the boat for them and reducing the amount of people in the boat instead of having eight or ten we'll now only have two or three and then we'll go out and find the boat for them so it's already sort of sold and they, they pre, pre know each other right you know? okay so do you feel like i guess one of the main problems when you, you go to a business of that size is that 
there is so many issues that you were trying to deal with yourself. I mean, if you've got 120 people yeah. and you're the face of the business, you're the person who sold the, the boat to yeah. these people and like you said, they're multi-million dollar boats, you're the person they're coming to regardless of the fact that you've got um, you know, an operations manager or yeah. a jetty. And, and, they're, and they're coming to you if they can't get a toaster to work or they're coming to you if they want to sell their share or upgrade or they've scratched the boat. So every single problem was coming coming my, my way. Obviously trying to make yourself high level or trying to tell a client that you've just taken 300 grand of their money, but I'm only dealing with high level issues doesn't resonate well. Right. You know, because it's, it's a really personalized type business, but maybe that was my own fault in, in training or at the start and when I'm selling them the share, then I should have explained that a little, little bit more. Um, so if I was to do it all again, this is this is the things that I would. Yeah, so let's, let's let's touch on that. If you were, you know, because you, you you've obviously grown a business, probably a five million dollar year plus turnover yep. business. It's a, it's a business that was at the top of its game in that that space, and it's still a very reputable brand now. But now you're scaling it down because you were probably sick of all the issues that you had when it was at that level. Going through that whole journey, and you know, over nine or so years, it's not a very long journey. You know, you've, you've got yep. you went up, and now you're bringing it back down quite quickly. Going back now, what would you do differently? Like, there's would have been so many lessons. Yeah, what would I do differently? As much as I hate to say it, I wouldn't do anything under 45 foot, which takes out the Chris Craft. Right. Yeah, Chris Craft's a beautiful boat. It's one of my favorites. When I had the whole fleet, even up to 60 foot, I would still, if I was going to do it for the day, I'd take the Chris Craft. That's, that was my, my favorite. The reason being is there's the same amount of admin in a 32 foot boat as there is in a 60 foot boat. Um, if not more, to be honest. Right. You get the same amount of problems on a 32-foot boat as you do in a 52-foot boat. Difference being, you get about a third of the, third of the money yeah. and you still need the same amount of staff to, to run the syndicate boat like that. So I would discount all the smaller boats, unfortunately. Um, I'd keep a fleet of around 45 to 55 foot. Um, in our lifetime, we've done seven 52s. Uh, 160 and 245 so it gives that's a great indication itself that that's that's where the, the market that's where the is market. yeah i would keep so that, that i guess that problem there sounds like you want to try and optimize your time and, and make your time i guess as roi positive as possible right yeah. if you're dealing with a, a boat that may be making you five thousand dollar a month yeah. it's taking you 20 hours a week or you yeah. deal with the boat that's making you thirty thousand dollars a month and yeah. it's taking you 20 hours you obviously might try to deal with that yes that problem yeah but obviously you know throughout the the time is you don't know you know you think i need a 28 foot guys are going to go into the 32 the 32 they're going to go to the 45 so it's a pr pr progression um but now a lot of people are looking at the 52 for their initial buy-in or their first boat so i'll definitely stick to a smaller fleet of by smaller fleet i mean number of boats yeah um, I would narrow it down to only between 45 and, and 55 foot, um, and I'd keep it in one location. Um, I'd probably have better, better training procedures and for procedures staff. for the staff. Um, again, I got spoiled with my first couple of staff, and they picked things up really, really quickly, and then I wouldn't go to, to my detriment. I didn't go probably go back and check every staff member off or have, or have Kate. Um, KPIs. So you just assumed that because you know yeah. two or three people picked it up really really quickly, it must just be. Or I was a, I was allowing another staff member to train them and then expecting them to be at my expectation. So right again, it's, it sounds like I'm bringing everything back onto myself. But I think if I got if you had a, a better procedures and systemization of the business, it would would have run a lot smoother. Right. 
But I think this is all like, I mean, you, you're still in your 30s now. It's all of this stuff is incredible learning. You know, like you've 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 built a business to a, a very substantial size, um, and now you have all of these learnings. They're not necessarily problems. You can now take no, all of this. No, it's just life lessons. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you think all of, uh, I guess, your attention to detail, you know, running boats of a couple of million dollars, you've got to make sure these things are in pristine condition and yeah. um, sort of think of all the problems or think of all the answers before someone even asks you a question, right? Yeah. So do you think you've gained that experience from the years you spent in aircraft and, and you know, working Definitely on Definitely the attention to detail. Um, you know, we would be working down to two thousandths of an inch um, tolerance levels, so there was no room for error. Um, you can't pull over a plane in midair. Yeah. I mean, you can always throw your anchor down on a boat. It's not not ideal. Um, so you didn't really have much margin for error. Um, and I think also, you're every day you're looking for problems on these on these aircraft, and you'd be walking around looking for little leaks up in the tail or little little nicks in little nicks in fan blades, which are going to affect the aircraft performance. So even now, when I go down to a boat or a boat's boats backing into the berth, straight away I'm already looking at the corners, the edges, where, where, the, where, the, where, the, where the fuel fuel goes in, just out of subconsciousness, it's just second nature for me now, right. and these are I suppose, the things that maybe some of the other guys didn't, didn't do, or wouldn't, wasn't accustomed to, should I right. say, um, but yeah, definitely the aircraft training is, is ingrained in me now. So yeah. looking for, and I guess that's probably why the business was so successful, right, because you know, when you were on and you weren't spreading yourself thin, yeah. it was running like yeah. a world-old machine yeah. and, and, and I guess that's why it grew so quickly. Yeah. Where where to from now? So at the moment, you've got two boats in, in the water. Yeah. Um, you've, you've got the second company attached to that now, which is detailing of other people's boats plus yeah. your own. What, I mean, with everything you've learned over the last 10 years, where's where's the trajectory now? You obviously said you weren't For, for, for Ian Rose or yeah, for LBS? Everything. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, you know, about three months ago, I decided I need to take some time off. Um, I just have been at it consistently for eight years. Yeah. Um, took its toll on various aspects of life. Yeah. Um, fortunately or unfortunately, COVID came, whichever way you want to look at it. So it, it was a chance to actually have a bit of a break and the, the refresh that I, that I needed. Yeah. So I've, I've come back now with some really renewed motivation. Um, I've got my head in a lot better space. Um, I actually started doing some business management training um, or business coaching training to yeah. become a business coach. Um, that in itself was in, 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 invaluable um, and just learning how to deal with other people, understanding that people are not always gonna think like you trying to work out their profile before you go into a conversation or negotiation. So at the moment, our detailing business is really ramping up. Um, as I said, I've come back with a lot of renewed motivation. That's uh, one of the reasons why I'm sitting here today to do the podcast. The podcast yeah. yeah, so typically I hate public speaking. Um, but one of the goals I set no, myself. To this anyway, right? no. <laughs> one of the goals I set myself was to do some sort of motivational or public speaking work. Yeah, it's just a strong challenge. I don't think you know you can't hide emotions. Um, definitely, just get anxiety about being up on stage or in front of people. Well, talking. they reckon it's the most. Um, I guess people would rather um, speak on stage than they would die or something. People are more scared of speaking. Yeah, they find the most fear things in the world. Yeah. So it's just now it's just pushing those boundaries again. Um, you know, as I said, we've, we've done it before. 
doesn't mean we failed. Just yeah. we had to drop back a bit. We just we just come again at, at what 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 we've learned. So it says that you're still going to stay in the the marine industry. Definitely stay in the marine industry. Yeah, yeah I'm not. No, I'm not going anywhere. Um, it's been quite funny seeing people's reactions. Now I'm back on the marina, back on the tools. Um, obviously grew luxury boat syndicates very quickly, um, very fast. We were everywhere in the harbour. Yeah. Talked to other detailers, marine operators, and they'll all say like, yeah, my, my name was everywhere. Um, so I am coming back, um, definitely with a good team as well. So we'll, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll just keep going and see what happens coming out of COVID and the other side and looking forward to the journey. See you back on the marina. That's right. Mate, thank you very much for coming on. I think that was gold. Um, and if anyone wants to get in contact with Ian, is Luxury Boat Syndicate still online? Yeah, yeah. Still out there. All right, thanks. Thanks very much for having me.